together to Lord's Day 49 in our catechism, Lord's Day 49. But before we look at that and what it speaks to us about the third petition of the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I'd like to read with you from Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter ending at verse 1 of chapter 4. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself." Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Amen. Lord's Day 49 asks us quite simply, what does the third petition of the Lord's Prayer mean? And the answer is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven means help us and all people to renounce our own wills without any backtalk to obey your will, for it alone is good. Help everyone to carry out his office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. Amen.
Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, back when my children were small, I noticed something fascinating when they were learning the words to the Lord's Prayer. For our little ones, the old pronouns that we use in the Lord's Prayer, thy and thine, are unfamiliar. Frankly, that's about the only place they use them. And so we end up having to explain to them what they mean, that they're forms of the word you and your. But what struck me is that my kids didn't initially notice that these were unfamiliar words. Instead, they simply substituted words with which they were familiar that sounded similar, which is something we often do when we're little. And so they would pray, my kingdom come, my will be done. And what's amusing about that is that's the prayer that people really want to pray, isn't it? My will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, that's the selfishness that rises up naturally within us. Our deepest desire in sin is that we might be on the throne, that our desire might be fulfilled, that we might be the king. And it's for victory over precisely that impulse that Christ has called us to pray. As we mature in him, the Lord wants us to recognize that the greatest thing we could receive is not that our will be done. Not that we could call all the shots, but rather that we could learn that he is wiser, he is better, and we could thereby learn to submit to him. That's what we're praying for here. God's children ask for aid in embracing his will. Now, as we consider what that means for us as God's children to ask for His aid in embracing His will, we're going to see that it starts out with accepting His will alone, exclusively, with obeying His will readily, but also with answering His will joyfully. But, but before we even look at that, we need to get the basic foundation and ask what exactly do we mean when we talk about God's will? The obvious answer when we ask what is God's will is it's whatever God desires, right? And in theory, that's correct. My will comprises the things that I desire to have happen or that I desire to do. And so with God's will, it's what he desires to do or what he desires to have occur. But that doesn't express our relationship to his will. In terms of our relationship, we encounter his will in two different forms. We encounter, first of all, his will of command, which is what he reveals in Scripture, especially in the, in the law. The Bible, the Bible tells us about God, about who he is, about what he has done, but it also gives us insight into his instruction for us. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, after giving us many instructions about what we are to do, how we are to behave, what we are not to do. Moses writes, the secret things, the things he's not revealed, belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So that's God's uh, will of command. 
the things he wants us to do. It's the, the commands that he gives us in Scripture. But then there's also a second way he reveals his will in Scripture, and that's his will of decree. That's what's referred to in the start of this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. You see, our God, we believe he is sovereign. That nothing happens apart from his will. That if something occurs, God has ordained it. Right down to the smallest details, to the the loss of a single hair from your head. We know that God has decreed all of that. Now, he hasn't revealed all of those decrees to us. Surely the world is not large enough to reveal all or to hold all of the books that that would require. But we know that from Scripture, that he explains that all that comes to pass, he's ordained it, and we see it unfold. We see it foretold a bit in some of the promises of Scripture, but we see it unfold as we live through history. If it occurs, it occurs by means of God's will. And so we're praying that God would teach us, with both respects of his will, to accept his will exclusively. So first and foremost, that means accepting his revealed will from Scripture, his commands. At times, people, especially those outside the church, complain that the Bible is hard to understand. You know, I don't think that's really the case. It's often hard to accept. It might be hard to agree with, but it's not very hard to understand. God made it easy to understand. He knows how weak we are. He knows how small we are. And he wrote this book for his children. Now, of course, we need the Holy Spirit. But the reason we need the Holy Spirit is because in sin, we don't really want to accept what we see in here, especially when he commands us what not to do and what we must do. In giving us the Bible, God is really He's really given us a condensed version of what we need to know. Although the Bible tells us much, it omits much that we might like to know. The Bible doesn't tell us why God has commanded us to do this and not do that. It doesn't tell us why He's ordained to do this thing and not to do that. He doesn't explain His reasons for timing of events. There are countless questions we wish the Bible would answer, but it doesn't. However, God has included everything we must know. John tells us in John 20, verse 31, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. In other words, the Bible gives us everything we need to know so that we might be saved. And beyond that... Psalm 119 asks us, how can a young man keep his way pure? In other words, someone who has come to know the Lord, who has come to trust in Christ, how can he live in a way that reflects that? How can he live in a way that reveals his faith? And the answer is by guarding his life, his way, according to your word. Then it says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So God gave in his word... The instruction we need, first of all, to be saved, to have a relationship with Him, but then secondly, to live a holy life of response. And we're praying that God would allow us to accept that. That's hard sometimes. Young people ask the adults, 
how often they've seen very clearly spelled out in God's Word, this is what I need to do in this situation, and they didn't like it very much. It seemed like the hard way. It seemed like there were a lot more easy ways out. Really, I have to go and seek peace with this person? I can't just write him out of my life? That seems a lot easier. Really, I have to forgive this person who's hurt me so much just because he repented to me? I haven't even gotten even yet. Really, I'm not allowed to pass on that juicy tidbit? Really, I'm not allowed to speak ill of my rather foolish authorities over me? Really. There's lots among God's commandments that we don't initially like. But we're praying that He would convince us that what He has commanded is good is in fact what is absolute best for us, even when we don't see it, even when we don't understand it, even when at the moment it certainly feels otherwise. And again, God's will involves more than just His commands. Yes, His will involves His instructions for what we must do, but it also involves His will of decree. And in some respects, it's even more difficult to accept that part of His will, Because in much of life, it seems like, from our perspective, things just don't make sense. So much of life seems random. We long to understand how this event could be good, or why that event God would decree. Does God truly have a purpose and a plan for everything in life? And God says, yes, absolutely nothing happens apart from His will. Absolutely nothing is random or accidental or a mistake. All things work according to His will and His purpose and His plan. Obviously, that includes the great events of history, the rise and fall of nations, the start and end of wars. The coming of earthquakes and famines and tsunamis and floods. Yes, all of that we understand. That's all in God's decree. But also the striking of one person with a disease. The loss or the gain of a job. The breakup of a relationship. The endurance of a heartache. The Bible tells us that God cares for the sparrows of the sky and the flowers of the field. There is absolutely nothing that escapes His notice, nothing that occurs apart from His plan. And our calling as those who are saved by Christ, our calling is to accept His will exclusively. Now the natural man in his alienation from God, his desire is... I want my will to be done. And if something doesn't make sense to me or something's not good to me, then I have the right to condemn it. I have the right to question it. I have the right to write it off as being random chance. Bad luck. But the Christian doesn't have that liberty because we know that our God is sovereign and He is good. But the only way we will accept that, the only way we will agree with that is if He is at work within us. That means we're praying that he would remove from us our self-confidence. You say, wait a minute, I thought self-confidence was a good thing. A form of it maybe, if you're acting in a play in front of a crowd, it's good to know your abilities. But but really, self-confidence is contrary to God-confidence. We need to not trust in us, but to trust in him. 
What comes natural to the sinful man is to trust in us and only in us. But we're praying that God would teach us to doubt ourselves and our judgment and our wisdom and to trust His judgment, His wisdom, His power, His decree. And if we really know God and we really come to know ourselves, that's exactly what we need. Because, you know, if we were in charge, we would make a mess of things because there's so much we can't know. There's so many things we can't see. There are so many consequences tied to the decisions we would have to make that we can't even recognize. Not only would we make poor decisions, we wouldn't know 98% of the decisions that we needed to make. When we embrace self-confidence, we're really embracing ignorance. So what we're praying is that God would teach us not to trust in us, not to be confident in us, but instead to be confident in God. We need to be in the place of Paul in his maturity. This letter is written very likely toward the end of his life. And he confesses in what we, wrote, or what we read here that he once thought he had it all worked out. Paul... Saul, young Saul, he knew what God demanded and he had studied it all. He had made a practice of following those commands to a T. He knew the the pedigree of the one who would be most pleasing to God and he had done the research, He he had worked out the genealogy and he knew that described him perfectly. He knew God wants someone who's a passionate follower and so he had cultivated passion toward God. But he came to recognize it was all rubbish because he wasn't trusting in God, he was trusting in Saul. So he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because all that he was doing, all that he was counting on rested in Saul. And Saul is weak, Saul is foolish, Saul is hopeless. So he cast it all aside and he cast himself at the feet of Christ, trusting in Him and in Him alone to accomplish everything that was needful. And folks, that's what we need. We're asking God to show us that He knows best the plan for our future, that He is the one who is good in all His ways, that whatever He commands, whatever He decrees, that is what we need, and our calling is to accept it and to rejoice that our God is on the throne. That's what we're praying, because that's what we need, that God will lead us to accept His will exclusively. However, it's not just about accepting it. We also need to obey God's will readily, which is the second thing we see here. Because if we really do accept His will, if we truly believe that His will is best, then we will begin to do what God says we ought to do. That's why Psalm 119, in praising God's wisdom and His word, doesn't speak only of knowing. It's important to know what God has taught us, but we can't stop at knowing. Right at the start of that psalm, it says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, whose way, whose behavior, who walk in the law of God. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart. You hear how active that is? Their way, their walk, their keeping, their seeking. Those who truly believe that God's will is good, 
They're going to hear what his will is for them, what his commands are toward them, and they're going to follow that. Because the psalmist understands God's will is not merely to be understood and accepted. It's to be obeyed by those who truly trust him. Now that makes sense in the context of our prayer. I mean, about whom are we praying? We're praying about us to our Heavenly Father. We're seeking the blessing of the one who is perfectly wise, perfectly loving, perfectly sovereign, perfectly merciful. And we're saying, put me in the center of your will. Well, if he does that, he's going to change us, isn't he? Because we were sinners. We were rebels. We were cast-offs. We were in exile. And we want him to draw us fully into what we were made to be. That's going to change everything about how we think, how we act, how we are. Thing is, on our own, we won't. And you know the reason. It's the same reason our children won't brush their teeth at night unless we're watching them. It's the same reason that we learned so many painful lessons when we were young that we could have avoided if we just listened to the ones who were wiser than us. On our own, we won't obey God. We won't do what He commands because of that sinful stubbornness within us. We want to do it our way. We want to call the shots. We want to be in the driver's seat no matter what. It's a matter of pride. If we obey God, we concede that He did know best and we didn't. And that's a hard pill for sinful man to swallow. Our hearts, not just because we're Dutch or because we're American, but because we're sinful, our hearts contain a brand of stubborn that is hard to fully express or even comprehend. What comes naturally within us is that same stubbornness of that child who absolutely detests new foods. And when his mother shoves a piece of that new food in his mouth, he shakes his head even when his senses tell him, you know, that's actually pretty good. No, he will not acknowledge it. He will not swallow that food. Well, that stubborn, unreasoning brattiness comes natural to the heart of every one of us. We know in our minds that God is never wrong. We know in our minds that God will always do what is right. And yet, still we hesitate, still we resist, because still we long to be on the throne. So we need Him to change our hearts, to soften us, to lead us to accept that He is, in fact, the one who needs to be on the throne. That's why Paul compares the Christian life to a race. He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. Notice that. He's already come a long way. He's already put off so much of that self-confidence in which he once trusted. He's already become Paul instead of Saul. And yet he recognizes he has a long way to go. And I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's not talking about a brief sprint to the finish line. He's talking about a marathon, an ultra-marathon, a day-by-day plodding forward to embrace the will of Christ and to cast off the will of Paul that once held him like, like a net, imprisoning him. Fighting off strand by strand, he pushes forward, learning day by day to follow after the Lord. It's, 
It's a lifelong race. That's the Christian life. Because so much of what holds us down, so much of what ensnares us to our stubbornness, to our sinfulness, to our selfishness, we don't even see it at the start. Some sins, some failures and faults are so ingrained in us that it takes years for us to even recognize them, much less put them behind us. The temptations, the ways of thinking, the ways of perceiving, the ways of speaking, the ways of evaluating that were rooted in us from the start, not only in our sinful nature, but in the generations that came before us sometimes. And you know what? We can't perceive. We cannot perceive all of the selfishness and all of the self-reliance that has been enslaving us without God revealing it. And in His mercy, He doesn't reveal it all at once. You ever feel that? Like, wouldn't it be great if we could just put it all on paper, have a checklist, start ticking it off? But you would be so overwhelmed at the absolute volume of the sin that fills your life that you would throw up your hands in disgust and hopelessness. So God, in His mercy, shows you one sin, one bit of rebellion, one bit of self-reliance that you need to deal with today. And he calls you to accept his will rather than your own, to put off this one piece of sin, this one piece of rebellion, to follow after him in this one way today. And tomorrow there'll be a new one. The next day there'll be another one. And he'll give you the strength for those as well. That's why we pray this day by day. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Day by day, seeing the new sin, seeing the new direction, seeing the new obedience that we need to embrace. And it involves all of life. Notice how in our catechism. Now, this translation of our catechism actually is very similar to the one in our old blue Psalter hymnal, but there are some subtle changes. Um most of which were made to bring it back in line with the original. And here's one of them. In the older translation, it said, Help everyone to carry out all his work as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. Here it says, carry out his office and calling. That's important. We all have an office. Minister is an office. Elder, deacon, those are offices. But so is believer. We all possess as Christians the office of believer. And with that office come particular obligations. The obligation to know God deeply and truly. The uh, the priestly obligation to sacrifice on the altar, as it were, our old nature and its sins. The prophetic obligation of confessing Christ before the world, the kingly obligation of bringing all our life under the sway of the Lord, under His control. We're praying that God would teach us to embrace His will with regard to our office as believer, but not only our office, also our calling, because each one of us has a particular calling in which we carry out that office. For some of you it's as a student, for others it's as a teacher. For some of you, it's as a business owner or perhaps as an employee. Perhaps your 
calling involves unique ways of serving others that are very humbling. Others of you, it involves exercising authority over others that can be intoxicating. And what God wants us to see, what Jesus wants us to recognize when we pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The angels obey Christ in absolutely every aspect of their being, and so are we called to do. That means that our worship certainly ought to be brought under the obedience of God's word. Worshiping only in the way we're commanded, but also the way you teach. Also the way you do your finances. Also the way you run your business. Also the way you fix that engine. Also the way you pull that wire. Also the way that you care for those animals. Also the way that you... There is no part of life over which God has not exercised His authority. That means there is no part of life, no aspect of your calling in this life, where you are not commanded to obey the will of the Lord. And we need His help to even recognize that. It's overwhelming. You start thinking about, okay, how... How do I do this job that I do that it seems like unbelievers and believers do in like manner? How do I do that job in a way that's uniquely Christian? Well, you need the wisdom and you need the guidance of God Himself to show you that as you study His Word, as you seek to apply it to your unique calling. And you will if you're asking Him. Paul said, only let us hold true to what we have attained. We start where we are. We start with... Our office as believers, confessing Christ in worship, confessing Christ among his, his fellow, or our fellow believers. And we go from there into the rest of our calling, into the rest of life, asking Him daily to help us do this in a manner that demonstrates that He is our King. And then finally we pray. Not only that we might accept His will exclusively and obey His will readily, but that we might answer His will joyfully. Because God cares not only that we accept His will, but how we accept His will. It fascinates me that this letter to the church in Philippi is one that Paul wrote from imprisonment. He was, as best we can tell, under house arrest, although it may have been an actual prison. He had experienced persecution in countless varieties. There were people actively working to make his life in its imprisonment miserable. And that was just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, Paul's life under the will of God's decree had been less than pleasant. It had involved hatred from the Jews whom he loved, persecution by the Gentiles whom he sought to reach with the gospel, imprisonment, slander, the threat of torture and death. And what does Paul tell his readers? Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And a little before that, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you might be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights. Even in the midst of hardship and trial and persecution and hatred, he says, rejoice, celebrate, don't complain, don't grumble, don't mutter, don't sink into depression, but rejoice that God has ordained perfectly for your life what he knows to be best. 
How in the world do we do that? It's easy when you just got a new job or you just got a promotion, you just got a big pay raise or, or your wife loves you and your kids are bringing you little uh, draw, you know, self-drawn posters, portraits. Oh yeah, that's great. Then the sun's shining. It's one of Michigan's five sunny days. It's great. But what about when you just lost that one whom you love? What about when the doctor's diagnosis is exactly what you didn't want to hear? What about when you just lost that job and you don't know what the prospects are for another one? What about when you get that letter from the IRS? What about when you find out that that person you so trusted has betrayed you so painfully? What about then? Well, if you're looking at the circumstances, there's no joy. And if you're looking at your ability to overcome those circumstances, there's certainly no joy. But Paul says, my, finally, my brothers, rejoice always. And then at the end of that chapter, he tells us how. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. What He's telling us is this life isn't it. It's not all there is. It's not the end. This life is a preparation for a life that is so huge, so large, so extensive that this is just the smallest piece. This is, the, this is the boot camp for a whole career. And if we recognize that, if we recognize that Christ is using all of these hardships, all of these trials, all of these difficulties to prepare us for an eternal existence before Him, using our callings, using our gifts, using our abilities to serve Him in a way that is beyond what we can fathom here, then we'll be able to accept this hurts right now. This is hard right now. But it will be very good. If you're training for a marathon, I've never run one. But if you're training for a marathon, you've got to run a lot. And you don't run the easy stuff. You don't run a level track. No, you go find that half mile hill on 108th and you run up it as fast as you can without a break. And then you turn around, you run down, and you run up it again. And you do that ten times over to build up your stamina. And it's not going to be pleasant while you're doing it. But on the day of that big marathon, when every hill seems pretty easy because that hill was so long and hard, you're going to be pretty thankful that you put in that hard work. Well, that's what Christ is calling us to do now. He sets those hard things in front of us so that we can learn those lessons that we wouldn't embrace on our own, but that He knows we need to learn. Lessons about His goodness, His sovereignty, His trustworthiness, His holiness. So that we'll trust Him without question in eternity. So even when the circumstance dictates that we grieve, that we mourn, that we weep, in the midst of our tears we can rejoice if by His Spirit we recognize God is sovereign, God is good, and God will never, ever, ever let us down. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us pray that for ourselves, yes, for our families, for our children for our church, 
for our nation, for our world, let us pray that God would be preparing multitudes in this way. That in eternity we might be well prepared to give him the glory that he deserves. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are sinful and we are weak. We are so quick to trust in ourselves when in fact we ought to distrust ourselves immensely. Teach us daily, Lord, to put ourselves last. To stop resting in us and to rest instead wholeheartedly, joyfully in your will. Doing what you have commanded us, accepting what you have ordained for us. Confessing boldly that you are the one who knows what we need. And so, Father, teach us to rejoice in you no matter what the circumstances might hold. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as we learn to accept God's will, what happens is we become more and more like Him. We reflect His character more. We become more holy. So let's acknowledge that together as we stand and sing together. Number 451... Take time to be holy. Number 451.